If you have your Bible this morning, let's turn together to the book of Titus, Titus chapter 1. And we're going to read together from verse 5 through verse 9. 5 through 9. Verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Let's pray. Our great God in heaven, I pray for all of us this morning as we now peer into your unfathomable word. I pray, Lord, that you would grant to us wisdom and knowledge and understanding to understand the things that are written here. We thank you that you've spoken to us. We thank you that you haven't left us in the dark. And Lord, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would come this morning and would teach us instruct us, that you would shake us, that you would challenge us, that you would cause us to be uncomfortable with our comfort that we have in anything that is not of you. Lord, we pray that you would bring home to our hearts uh, the seriousness and the importance of your word and of hearing from you. And Lord, I pray that we would have ears to hear, and I pray that you would help me to speak this morning. And that what would be heard is not simply the ideas of Eli, but Lord, what would be heard is is truly your mind that you have revealed to us in the Holy Scriptures. I pray that you give us all discerning hearts. And Lord, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts, that this would be a day of change. This would be a day of uh, transformation in our lives. And Lord, thank you that you can do that. This is not the work of man, but the work of, this is the work of you to do that. Lord, I commit all of this to you. Speak to us through the ministry of your word. In Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, it has fallen to my lot to preach on this passage in the Bible. This morning we are continuing to look at Paul's first instruction to Titus, 
his first instruction to Titus, his first and foundational instruction to Titus for the ordering of the Christian community on the island of Crete. And if if you've been with us as we've been going through the book of Titus, the Apostle Paul left Titus on Crete to set that community in order and to fix the things that were lacking, to put those things in order that were lacking. And the first thing, as we looked at last week, that needed to be placed in order was the appointing of elders. Look at verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Last week we talked about what an elder is and why we need elders or why we need leaders. An elder I defined last week this way. An elder is a gift of Jesus Christ to the church. A shepherd who is responsible for leading, watching over, and equipping the local Christian community. And if you remember, I got this definition uh, from various passages of Scripture, but the idea of the elder being a gift was from Ephesians chapter 4, where it says that Jesus, after he ascended into heaven, gave gifts to men. And among those gifts was pastors and teachers for the purpose of equipping the saints so that the church would grow up into Christ in all things. And this was a promise of God that he had given in the Old Testament that he would give leaders and shepherds to his people to teach them knowledge and true understanding. So an elder or a leader, a pastor, is a gift of Jesus to the church. A shepherd responsible for watching over the local Christian community. And why we need elders, we looked at that last week also. We need elders, we need leaders, because all of us are followers, including the leaders. Everyone except for God alone naturally follows for the simple reason that none of us are omniscient and we live in a world that is confusing and we don't have all the answers. And so we we look to those leaders, we trust those leaders that we believe are reliable and who know. People stand up and say, I know the answer to this question. I know the truth. I know the path. I know the way. And so we follow because we don't. And that's just the way life is. God designed the world that way. He didn't make us omniscient, did he? And he made us to depend upon leaders. And he himself gave us leaders and shepherds to guide us. And unfortunately, Satan also sends leaders to lead people astray and to destroy them. And a pastor is a gift from God given to guide people in God's truth and to protect them from those false leaders. And so without true eldership, a Christian community will fall apart. Without true eldership, a Christian community cannot even begin to be healthy and beautiful. And with bad eldership, with no eldership, it will fall apart. But with bad eldership, it will quickly descend into chaos. So Paul tells Titus, the first thing you need to do to order this community is to appoint elders. Now this morning, now that we've looked at what elders are and why we need elders and leaders, we're going to look this morning at who should be an elder. Who should be an elder? That is, we're going to look at the biblical qualifications for eldership. And this is extremely important, brothers and sisters, because it's not enough simply to have leaders. According to the Bible, it is not enough simply to have leaders. Amen? But we need to have true leaders. We need to have qualified leaders. 
Think about the various things in life that requires qualifications. There's all sorts of things in life among human society where we require qualifications. All sorts of jobs. Teaching jobs. If you want a job in architecture, if you want to be an architect, if you want to be involved in sports, if you want to drive a bus, all of those things require qualifications. And I could make a huge long list and I won't. That would just go on forever. How much more do you think does the Christian community, when it is appointing leaders to guide it and to watch over it, need qualifications? If driving a bus requires qualifications, if building a building requires qualifications, how much more leading the Christian community? Just think about that. What, what is the, how do you compare that? Alexander Strzok comments that an elder is entrusted with God's dearest and most costly possessions, his children. No earthly monarch would dare think of hiring an immoral or incapable person to manage his estate, nor would parents, parents think of hiring an immoral, uh, of entrusting their children or family finances to an untrustworthy or incompetent person so too the high and holy one will not have an unfit, unqualified steward caring for his precious children. Just makes sense. Paul does not leave Titus in the dark when he tells him to appoint elders. He doesn't say, appoint elders, go for it, and hope all goes well. He immediately, after telling him to appoint elders, instructs him to appoint elders with these qualifications. So he gives the qualifications in verse 6 through 9 as we read. This is not the first time in the Bible where God's people are needing leaders that are qualified and where it says that there needs to be qualifications for God's leaders. This is not the first time in the Bible that talks about qualifications for leaders. Exodus 18 And Deuteronomy chapter 1 talk about appointing elders over the people, appointing leaders over the people. And those leaders, it says, need to be qualified. Here are just some of the qualifications said in Exodus 18 and Deuteronomy chapter 1. Able men who fear God, men of truth, who hate dishonest gain, impartial, wise, discerning, experienced, and courageous. Those are just some of the qualifications for leaders of God's people in the Old Testament to do the colossal task of leading God's people in this confusing world. And the need for leaders was established early on at the very beginning. The qualifications for elders were there at the very beginning. And those, that need in those qualifications remained authoritative all throughout the Old Testament, period. So it wasn't that Moses said, hey, appoint qualified elders in Exodus 18, and then later on that didn't matter anymore. With the coming of Jesus, do you think that the need for elders and the need for qualified elders has gone away? With the coming of Jesus? Because we might say, okay, maybe before Jesus we need leadership. Maybe before Jesus we needed qualified leadership because it was a dark world. But now the light of the world has come. Now the Savior of the world has come. Now the truth has come. And now we don't need leaders and we don't need qualified leadership anymore. But we see that when we come to the New Testament, don't we? 
We're confronted everywhere with the need for elders and for even more explicit qualifications of what those elders need to be. We have two large lists of qualifications in the New Testament here in Titus chapter 1 and in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We see in the book of Acts, Paul calls the elders to himself of Ephesus and he is weeping over them saying, I know that when I leave there's going to be grievous wolves that will rise up among you and I warned you for two years with tears and I'm telling you again now so that you will watch yourself and watch over the flock that God has entrusted to your care. So no, Paul wasn't under the impression that, hey, now that Jesus has come, we don't need to worry about elders anymore. It's not a big deal. In fact, with the coming of Jesus, my friends, what has happened is the intensity and the heat has risen. There's actually more of a need now for elders than there has ever been. The conflict with evil is not over The intensity has been rising and will keep rising until the day when we don't need under-shepherds anymore because the chief shepherd will appear. Amen? But actually, as time goes on, as we get closer to that time, the need for elders becomes more and more pronounced. This is why it's so important that we as the church listen and heed at this time more than ever to the Bible's instructions on eldership. Okay. Now let's turn to the qualifications for elders. And we're going to take more than one week to look at these qualifications. And that's not because I'm going to break down the entire list and slowly go through it. But it's because this morning... We're going to look at one qualification that deserves special notice and a special time devoted to it. This is a qualification that for many today seems archaic and offensive. And for, for, for some people, because it's an, it seems archaic and offensive, they might be puzzled, why am I bringing it up? If this seems archaic and offensive to the modern man, the modern mind. Why even bring it up, Eli? That's not going to make you win any popularity points. But my objective, brothers and sisters, is not to win popularity points. My objective is to preach the Bible. If that wasn't my objective, I don't have a right to stand here on Sunday mornings and talk to you. And I can only preach what I am convinced the Bible is teaching. Another potentially puzzling thing about this qualification is that this qualification isn't formally mentioned in this list. It isn't formally mentioned in this list. It is incidentally mentioned. And someone might ask, well, if it's not formally mentioned, why bring it up? Paul doesn't formally mention this qualification. But the point is this. Although this qualification is not explicitly stated, it is unquestionably implied. And the very fact that it is implied shows that for Paul, it was not an issue that was up for debate. The very fact that it was implied shows that Paul assumed that this qualification was understood. This isn't something he needed to talk about with Titus. It's understood. What is the qualification that I'm talking about? The qualification that I'm talking about is, of course, that an elder is to be 
a man and not a woman. That leadership in the church is to be male instead of female. The New American Standard that I'm reading from actually adds the word man in verse 6, and maybe some of your translations do as well, if you want to look at verse 6. New American Standard says, If any man is above reproach. Now in the Greek, the word man is actually not there, but the New American Standard adds it to draw out the obvious, to draw out the implication, to, to clarify what is clear, but can be missed. And you'll see in the next part of verse 6, the incidental mention that it needs to be a man is here. The husband of one wife. So in the Greek it would read, If any is above reproach, the husband of one wife. So Paul incidentally points to the fact that he's talking about men. He doesn't formally mention it because he assumes it's understood. This morning we're going to look at the divine basis for the qualification of male leadership. The question I'd like to ask this morning is, on what basis does that qualification stand? That's the question. Please put that into your mind. There there is so much to talk about regarding this question, okay? And I am not this morning going to be able to talk about everything that is related to this issue of male leadership. In fact, I have so many notes on this, I couldn't put them all in this sermon if I wanted to make this sermon four hours. Um... The question I'm going to limit myself to this morning is, on what basis does this qualification of male leadership stand? Okay, so, the, so Paul assumes that it's understood that an elder is to be male. So the question is, why does he assume that? What's the basis of that qualification? Where does that qualification come from? That's the question. We're going to be looking at the first two chapters of the book of Genesis, and we are only going to be scratching the surface. And I'd like to say this before we begin, before we turn there, that in discussions, in all, in all of our discussions, but it particularly it, it is important to recognize this with this one, that the, what ultimately matters is what God has to say about this question. That's the only thing that matters. I want to ask you if you agree with that. Do you personally agree that the only thing that matters on, even on all questions, but especially the, the, the controversial ones, when, when a lot of people are disagreeing and a lot of people disagree with, say, the Bible, do you agree and believe that ultimately the only thing that matters is what God says, not what we think, not what we prefer, not what our friends prefer, not what society prefers, you know, you'll realize in this life that going off of preference really isn't a good standard to go off of. Because, you know, one, take woman, for example, might prefer male leadership. And one woman might not prefer male leadership. And one man might prefer male leadership. And one man might not prefer male leadership. And it's not about what we prefer. It's about what God says. There's no unanimous preference in this world. If you don't understand that, that it's ultimately about what God says, if you don't accept that, nothing that I say in this sermon will matter. And if you don't understand that God's word is ultimately what matters, then 
you need to do some soul searching yourself. Turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Why the book of Genesis? Why, in answering this question, what is the basis of the qualification for male leadership? Why Genesis? Why jump back to the Old Testament? The British Bible teacher David Pawson comments as follows, quote, Both Jesus and Paul appeal to the first two chapters of Genesis, particularly the second, when teaching on male-female relationships. You remember this? We want to we know what Jesus' mind on, is on things, obviously, because we want to know what God's mind is on things. And when Jesus talked about male-female relationships, Matthew 19, he took his hearers back to Genesis, particularly Genesis chapter 2. Jesus believed that Genesis was the word of God, Genesis was true, Genesis was our standard and our guide on male and female relationships, and more than that. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, when Paul's talking about male and female relationships and issues relating to male leadership, Paul, in both places, takes the reader to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 as the basis of what he's saying. In Ephesians chapter 5, when Paul's talking about marriage and when he's talking about how the husband is the head of the wife and the husband is a representation of Jesus Christ and the wife is the representation of the church, he takes us where, do you think? To the book of Genesis chapter 2. So Jesus, Paul, the apostles, saw the book of Genesis as normative for us. The theologian Stephen Clark, in his massive study on this subject, men and women in the church, comments that it is not possible to understand the New Testament teaching on men and women without understanding how it is founded on the creation of Adam and Eve and on God's purpose as revealed in the creation of the human race. Let me read that again. It is not possible to understand the New Testament teaching on men and women without understanding how it is founded on the creation of Adam and Eve and on God's purpose as revealed in the creation of the human race. And finally, Theologian Ray Ortland comments, as Genesis goes, so goes the whole biblical debate. Now, it's unanimously recognized that there are two creation accounts in the book of Genesis. There's one that is panoramic, one that steps back and looks at the broad picture, and there's one that's detailed and magnified, as if you had a magnifying glass or you zoomed in. One is looking down on the earth from a distance, looking down on what's happening from a distance and looking at things in general versus the other that's, that seems to be on the ground, looking at things in specific. And you know what I'm referring to. Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. 
We, we have in Genesis chapter 1 this panoramic general overview of creation. Here are the main points of Genesis chapter 1. God is the creator of heaven and earth. That is, God is the creator of all things. And we talked about that uh, several, maybe a month ago or so, when we looked at the Christian doctrine of creation. God is the creator of heaven and earth. Everything that is exists because God created it. Here's another main point of Genesis chapter 1. God created everything by his word out of nothing. This is the thing that Genesis 1 wants us to know. This is the broad overview of creation. And he did it in six days. Genesis 1 also tells us that creation involved not only bringing things into existence, but then dividing those things. This is one of the main themes of Genesis 1. God creates the light, dividing it from the darkness. God creates the sky and divides it from the water. God creates the land, divides it from the sea. God creates the plants, all different kinds. God creates the stars, all different kinds, to divide the seasons and the times. God creates the animals, all different kinds of animals, to, re- to reproduce after their kind. And then God creates humans in his image, male and female. So there's a theme here of not only him creating, but creating and creating distinction and creating division. When God creates humans, we see a distinction. He doesn't just say he created human period or, or, or uh, human race in his image. He created the human race in his image, and that is male and female. And then God finally divides the seventh day from the rest of the week, sanctifies that. These are holy things. These are sanctified things. These are things that God has separated. And just as we would say what God has joined together, let no man separate, let's also affirm the other that what God has separated, let no man join together. Let no man confuse. The important points for us, brothers and sisters, when we're considering men and women in Genesis chapter 1, the important point is this that God created both men and women in his image. This is the important point of the first chapter. God created both men and women in his image. While they are distinct, they are equally in the image of God. We see their equality in Genesis chapter 1. It's not insignificant that that's the first thing we see. Genesis 1 comes first, then Genesis 2. In Genesis 1, we see that men and women are equally created, fearfully and wonderfully made. It's true that men are fearfully and wonderfully made. It's true that women are fearfully and wonderfully made by God. Who created man? God. Who created woman? God. Men and women are equally human. They're equally human. Woman and man are not two different kinds of animals. They're two different kinds of humans. They're two different kinds of humans who are made in the image of God. They share that equally. They're both above the animals. They were both made on on the sixth day. Men and women, we see in the book of uh, Genesis 1, equally share the task of being fruitful and multiplying. Verse 28, God blessed them. God did not say to Adam, Adam, be fruitful and multiply. (laughs) He blessed them and said, 
be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Men and women are equally uh, given dominion over all things in the earth. They're given dominion over the animals. They're given dominion over the lesser creation. And men and women equally exist to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. When the Westminster Confession, the catechism was put together, they asked, what is the chief end of man, mankind, humans? It's to glorify God. Why does a man exist? To glorify God. Why does a woman exist? To glorify God. And in that glorifying in God, to enjoy life and to enjoy God forever. Both men and women were created to glorify God and enjoy his creation and him. So here's where we see, here's the main points of of Genesis 1. But brothers and sisters, if that was all that there was, if that was it, if that was all that could be said about men and women, then we wouldn't have Genesis chapter 2. God would just say he created men and women in his image, gave them dominion, and boom, chapter 3. Satan comes and tempts them and they sin and the whole thing falls apart. If that was all there was to be said, the account would end in Genesis chapter 1. There'd be one creation account, but that's not all. And when Jesus and Paul and the apostles spoke about men and women and their relationships and, their, and, and what they are to God and to one another... They primarily referred to the creation account in chapter 2. When all the questions of, and the complicated questions of men and women relationships in life came up, Paul and Jesus took their readers and their hearers to Genesis chapter 2. What are the main points of Genesis chapter 2? Here are the main points of Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 seeks to show us and reveals to us how God created men and women. Genesis 1, that he created men and women. Genesis 2, how he created men and women. Genesis 1 is the general statement, and Genesis 2 is the specific details of how men and women were created in the image of God. Genesis 2 seeks to show us that men and women are different. Whereas chapter 1 seeks to show that men and women are equal, chapter 2 seeks to show us and does show us that men and women are different And this is shown in the way that God created them. The way that God created Adam and Eve reveals their divinely ordained place in God's world. And you know, we should be glad for this chapter because it gives us understanding into who we are as men and women. If all we had is Genesis chapter 1, we wouldn't really understand ourselves and understand the conflicts that we experience in life. Genesis 2 should excite Bible readers because, hey, God is giving us insight and knowledge into who we are, into our origin and into our order.
Ortland says this, What will now emerge clearly is that male-female equality does not constitute an undifferentiated sameness. This is the whole point here. Men and women are equal, but they're not the same. Here are the things that we see in Genesis 2. Look at verse 7. We see that God created man first. God created man first. The Lord God formed the man in the Hebrew. The article is actually there. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. And we see that man was alone when God created him like this way. The man was formed by himself. Look with me at verse 18. The Lord said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So here in Genesis 2, God makes man first, all by himself. And then after, says it's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to make a helper for him, suitable to him. In the Hebrew, suitable means uh, corresponding to, one that fits him, one that perfectly matches him and is perfectly compatible with him and will meet his need. Corresponding to him, when, when, when Adam sees Eve, he will know that she's perfect for him and that she was made by God for him. What we see here in Genesis 2.18 is that woman was made for man. This is a very important point. So number one, man was created first. And number two, we see in Genesis chapter 2 that woman was created for man. And I don't know about you, but I think this is an absolutely beautiful story, Genesis chapter 2. Everything about Genesis 1 and 2 speaks to me of just beauty. It's a beautiful story. It's beautifully ordered. Everything's working just right. Everything fits perfectly. It's very satisfying. There's no disappointment. You read it with great satisfaction. It's in Genesis 3 when everything starts to crumble and fall apart and become disordered and ugly and unhealthy. When the order starts to break apart. But I think if you don't see the beauty of these chapters, and beauty is a very important part of the book of Titus, then you're blind. Woman was made for man. That's the second point we see. Here's the third point. Woman was made from man. And look at verse 21 here. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Now, I said a moment ago that men and women are equal in many things, right? Who made them? God. Are they in the image of God? Are they both the image of God? Yes. But if I were to ask, where was Adam, what was Adam made from? The dust. And what 
was the woman made from? The man's rib. And so there's a difference in God's created order in how he chose to create men and women. There's a difference. There's so much, I think, depth here in Eve being created from Adam's rib, and we can't go into it. But I think here are the main two points to take away from him, uh, from Eve being made from the rib. And one is we have equality here. That is that Eve is made of the same stuff as Adam. Eve is made of the same stuff as Adam. They're the same stuff. Eve is dust indirectly because she was made out of the formed dust of Adam. And so as Adam comments, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, he's recognizing that in the woman is someone who's just like him, who's someone who's, who's of the same material as he is. So there's, there's equality, again, emphasized in the making from the rib, and there's difference as well. There's a difference in origin, as I said, and a difference in purpose. Because the woman was made from man and for man. Now, the traditional view on this is called complementarianism. Complementarianism. That is that men and women are equal and different, and their differences complement one another. That is the traditional biblical view, the traditional view that people see when they read the Bible. Men and women are equal, Genesis 1, and different, Genesis 2. The complementarians take both of those truths as the whole truth. If we were to just simply say men and women are different, we wouldn't be saying the whole truth. If we were just simply to say men and women are the same, we wouldn't be saying the whole truth. The Bible reveals, the the traditional view says, equality and a difference. Now the non-traditional view, which is called the egalitarian view, takes only the first truth as the whole truth and rejects the second. The egalitarian view says that the Bible affirms the equality of men and women. And the complementarians agree, but will not affirm the difference of men and women. Or at least they will see the difference as insignificant and inconsequential. That is, okay, I grant there's a difference, but it doesn't matter. It's a difference that's inconsequential and has no bearing on anything. And that you traditionalists have blown those differences out of proportion. And that's all due to the fall. The fall of man has taken differences that are not important and has made them important. You see those two views. In response to this, I'll simply say that the differences that are shown to us in chapter 2 are weighty and profound. And it's all pre-fall. That is, that the differences that are shown to us in the created order is before the fall. This is not after the fall. This is not after things went awry and the order was distorted that these differences began to show. But God intended in the scriptures to show us the differences. And they're significant and profound. It is significant that Adam was created first. It is significant that Eve was created for him. And it is significant that Eve was made from him. The Apostle Paul found the basis for male leadership here in the story of creation, in how God created men and women. 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul explicitly states in chapter 2, 
that a woman is not to teach or have authority over a man. He explicitly states it there. That is an explicit statement of male leadership in the church and that women should not be leaders in the church. And what is his reason? In 1 Timothy chapter 2, and he says, a woman is not to teach or have authority over a man. He says this, because Adam was created first. That is his reason. So did the Apostle Paul see the differences between men and women as inconsequential or consequential? He saw them as consequential. He bases male leadership upon the creation of differences. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that the man is the head of the woman. The man is the head of the woman and that man is the glory of God whereas woman is the glory of man. He says that in 1 Corinthians 11. Man is the head of the woman and man is the glory of God, not the image of God. Both are the image of God. And I'll explain the glory of God in a moment. Man is the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Paul, on what basis do you make this claim? This is a big claim. This is a consequential, substantial claim. And he says, because man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. And man was not made for woman, but woman was made for man. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. The basis of male headship and the differences of male-female glory is Genesis chapter 2. So I ask again, did did Paul see these differences as consequential or not? Now it's frequently said in in defense of the non-traditional view that all of Paul's gender ideas were cultural and culturally based. That is that What is the basis of male leadership according to the non-traditional view? The basis, the grounds, where does it come from? And it is told told to us that it comes from Paul's culture, Paul's chauvinism, Paul's myopic male post-fall view of women. But here... When Paul actually explains himself, what does he say? He says that the basis of this view is the scriptures and is the created, the differences between men and women in the created order. Is everybody following me so far? We're almost, we're getting, coming to the end here. And so we have only uh, two options when, we con- when we're confronted with this fact that to the Apostle Paul, the basis of his views on male and females and their, and their differences and their roles comes from Genesis chapter 2. We're confronted with this fact. We have only two options. Either Paul is right or Paul is wrong. Those are our only two options. Either Paul is right in his interpretation of Genesis 2, or he is wrong. And I don't want to go head-to-head with the Apostle Paul when it comes to interpreting Genesis chapter 2. David Pawson rightly comments here that what looks like a simple difference over the interpretation of Scripture, he's commenting on these debates about men and women in, in Scripture. 
What looks like a simple difference over the interpretation of Scripture easily slips into a subtle debate about its authority. Pawson is absolutely right. In these debates, when people are debating the interpretation of the Bible, so I'm interpreting the Bible a particular way this morning, and when those come and say, no, I'm going to interpret it a different way, it quickly, easily slips into a subtle debate about the Bible's authority. That is, Paul's not really inspired here. Paul's not really speaking God's word. Genesis 2 is actually just not God's word. 1 Timothy 2 is not God's word. 1 Corinthians 11 is not God's word. It, it moves from interpretation to biblical authority. And I think it does that because both sides of the argument realize that the Bible does teach male leadership. And so really the only way to get around that is to try to say that this is wrong. To me, brothers and sisters, it seems like Paul was right and that the scriptural record in Genesis and the whole tenor of it bears out the fact that God created men to be leaders and women to submit to his leadership as his helper, that God created equality and difference in his beautiful creation and order. I think what Paul is saying is borne out in the text and in the tenor of the text. And this is seen all throughout the Bible, actually. From the patriarchs in Genesis to the instructions in the law about who is to be leaders, the fact that no leader is instructed to be, uh, all leaders are instructed to be men, priests are instructed to be men, elders are instructed to be men, prophets uh, who wrote the scriptures are men, the kings are men, Jesus was a man, and Jesus chose 12 apostles who were male to be his, the leaders of his church. And so I, this is a, something we could talk about a lot, but the entire Bible bears out that difference that's established in Genesis chapter 2. Paul tells us that man is the glory of God. What does it mean that man is the glory of God? It simply means this, that man uniquely displays the attributes of God in a way that women do not. Man is the glory of God, that in the role that God has assigned to man, Man uniquely displays the attributes of God in a way that women do not. Barbara Mauser comments on this concept of the man being the glory of God. God has given man the glory of strength. Their bones, their muscles, and features are bigger and stronger. Men's voices are deeper and bespeak authority. The masculine being is characterized by self-possession, decisiveness, and initiative. Ultimately, all strength, authority, and power reside in God. He granted men the honor of displaying these characteristics in their physical bodies and their bearings. It's a controversial statement, I know. God is revealed throughout the Bible to be masculine or feminine. Masculine. Almighty, warrior, bridegroom, king. God reveals himself as masculine, as, as a he, and takes these attributes that we would call masculine unto himself. And God has given man to display those attributes. 
This is what his order in his creation is all about. When it says man is the glory of God, meaning simply this, that in the, in the creation and the role that God has for man, he created man to display that aspect of his being. And that is a privilege of men to do. And when men lead, when men are in that leadership role, when they're embracing it, when they're walking in that, they are there displaying something about God that God intended for them to display. What does it mean that woman is the glory of man? Paul says woman is the glory of man. When we say that woman is the glory of man, we mean this, that in the created order that God has for women, women uniquely display the attributes of man in ways that man does not in the role that God has given to them, in dependence, in deference, in receptivity, in delicacy, women displays the glory of mankind when she embraces and walks in her submission to to the leaders that God has given to her. It's a display of something that God wants to display. These masculine-feminine differences have been recognized Since time immemorial, it's been recognized in every culture. I think of the yin and the yang in ancient China, where they recognize that there's different qualities in life, masculine and feminine. There's different sides, masculine and feminine sides to all of life that is just simply built into the very nature of things. And men are created to display one of those attributes and women to display the other. Now, I'm speaking in generalities, of course, because there are many men and women that don't fit those molds. But when taken as a whole, when men and women are considered as a whole, these observations are true about men and women. And the basis of these facts can be found in biology, in neuroscience, and most importantly, in the Bible. Women are called to submit to the leadership of men, not because women are not able to lead, but because women were not made to lead. But in the Bible, we see a picture of what godly, ordered womanhood is to be all throughout the Bible. I would encourage us, if we want to know what does it mean to be a a woman in God's world, or what does it mean to be a man in God's world, then look no further than the Bible, my friends. And study the men in the Bible who walked in the order of God. And study the women in the Bible who walked in the order of God. And what you see in the Bible when you look at men and women, you see equality. You see that both are honored. You see that both are involved. Both are heard. You can see this in the life of Jesus and how he related to women. You can see it in all the, 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 the examples of godly women in the Old Testament. These women were strong, intelligent, competent, co-heirs of eternal life. They, they had many roles in the community. In the New Testament, women have roles in the body of Christ as well, gifts that God gives to them. But what we see in the Bible, despite the fact that uh, women are, and men are, are honored and living out their roles, we see that women are under the leadership of men. That's what we see in the Bible. If you hate what I'm saying... You can only hate what the Bible is revealing because I'm just pointing out this fact that even these wonderful, strong women were under the leadership of men. 
Men were made to be the leaders, but do they abuse this? Yes. We see this in the Bible. We see it in history. We see that men today, all across the world, horrendously mistreat women. And the answer to this abuse of women is not to neutralize God's created order. The answer to the abuse, the leadership abuse of men towards women is not to flatten out the differences between men and women and to react in that way. But the answer is to incriminate those men who are misusing their women and to teach the love of God in this world and to teach the equality and the image the equality of the image of God and the love that God has for all sexes because the love of Christ brothers and sisters enables people who are different to love each other love doesn't happen just because everybody becomes the same But love happens when people who are different learn to love and accept one another and treat each other as valuable and honorable. Amen? There's so much more I can say. I'd just like to say that just because a man is a leader doesn't mean he's a good one, doesn't mean he's strong, doesn't mean he's good. Just because a woman is a helper and a And to submit to the leadership of man doesn't mean she's weak. God is said to be our helper in the Bible. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is in a relationship of submission with his Father, which in no way detracts from his equality with the Father. And so if a person thinks that equality cannot include submission, one needs only to look at the Trinity and the relationship between the Father and the Son. It takes immense character and strength to be a helper to someone who doesn't deserve it. It takes immense character and strength to walk in the submission that God has created. And for those women who do that, I commend you. Because this is what Jesus Christ did when he submitted and when he is, uh, as he is now in submission to his Father. And in Philippians chapter 2, Paul tells us that though, God, though Christ was equal with God, yet he made himself of no reputation so that he could come into this world and serve those who do not deserve his service. As we take the Lord's Supper this morning, we need to remember that Jesus, who is fully God, willingly and lovingly submitted to his Father in coming to this earth, to give his body and his blood for sinners like you and I who don't deserve it. The Christian life is not about bland, flat equality. The Christian life is about God's order and it's about God's amazing, amazing love. When each sex gladly obeys the Lord by displaying their respective glories and walking in the order that he has made for them, They work together to establish a harmony that displays the full beauty and the full glory of our unfathomable God. Let's pray. Please stand with me as I pray for us.
Father, as we're confronted with hard things in the scriptures and things that seem crazy to most people in our world today, I pray that you would give us the courage to take a careful look at what you have said. I pray that you would give us the wisdom, Lord, to understand. And Lord, I thank you most of all for the scriptures and for your beautiful order that you made, because everything you do is so beautiful, Lord. I pray that you would help us to see the beauty of uh, Genesis 1 and 2. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us all as a community and as individuals to order our lives, not according to this pattern of the world, but according to uh, your word and your truth. And Lord, we thank you that your order is beautiful and healthy for us. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to... um, to understand and to walk in the roles that you've given to us and to do that well and not poorly. And Lord, that we would display what you want us to display. And I commit this to you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.